We're all trying to outrank someone on Google, but did you know that 50% of all searches result in zero clicks because users are finding what they're looking for without clicking away? Plus 14% of all clicks Google sends back to its own properties like Google News, Images and YouTube. In 2020, Google has changed SEO forever and in this episode, I talk about what that means practically for your SEO and content strategy moving forward. Plus, I talk about the hottest ad option on Facebook ads, drawing low cost per click and low cost per acquisition and how you can make them work for you. All that and a whole lot more in this episode of Inbound Buzz. Welcome to the Inbound Buzz Podcast, your weekly jolt of all things digital and inbound marketing. Brought to you by redpandas.com.au. Now for your host and co-founder of Red Pandas, Moby Sadiq. Welcome to Inbound Buzz. I'm your host, Moby Sadiq, and you're listening to episode 104. And coincidentally, the last episode of 2019. Now, if you've been following the show for a while or you know me, you'll know that this is my favorite time of the year. And no, not because of the overeating or New Year's Eve or fireworks or anything like that, but because it is the season of goals. It's a time of the year where you can take a good, hard look at yourself, appreciate your successes. And I say that first because I find me, I'm always more critical than stopping, pausing, being grateful and appreciating my successes, um, as well as, of course, the areas you want to focus on, things that were maybe holding you back, things that, you know, simple things, but, you know, core things that you think you could focus on, fix to take yourself to the next level. Now, this is not a Tony Robbins episode or Tony Robbins podcast, so uh, I'm going to save that to the end. I'm going to share some practical advice to help you focus on your goals in 2020 because goal setting, the way we have done it, is so broken. It's so old. So I'm going to share a, a better way on how to help you to do that. So we'll come back to that. But first off, let's talk Google in 2020 and specifically, let's talk SEO in 2020. Now, Rand Fishkin of uh, MozFame, you know, the, if you don't know, the very popular uh, SEO tool. Um, he was at one point probably the leading authority in the world of SEO. Uh, he still is a, a leading authority, but now he, he dabbles in a whole bunch of other stuff. He's now the CEO of Spark Toro. And he recently presented at Search Marketing Expo East uh, in the US about how Google's business model as it pertains to search is evolving. Now, one of the big things Rand and a company called Jumpshot Data found that Google is really pushing zero-click searches. So what, what are zero-click searches exactly? Well, they're searches when a user doesn't actually click into a website because the user has found their answer in the search results. Now, this has been on a steady rise in 2019, so much so that now the majority of Google searches have no click. Now, if you think about it, this happens all the time. Like yesterday, I was Googling how old is Tom Brady from the New England Patriots and gave me the result. I didn't have to click in. I didn't have to do anything. Um, so anyway, most results and searches have no click now because Google wants to keep you in their ecosystem. Rand also shared a trend of Google gobbling up certain industries where they kind of scrape, aka steal, the data from their websites and share that information in the search engine result pages, or SERPs for short, taking away all their traffic. Now, thankfully, most of us and the businesses that we run, uh, we're okay. But there are currently lawsuits pending for Lyric websites, for example, suing Google, saying that Google, you're literally taking all of our data, you're scraping it, you're throwing it into the search engine result pages, and we're losing all these visitors. 
Um, and this has happened elsewhere too. Google's crushing traf- uh, travel websites, hotel websites, weather, sports publishers, and they're either keeping people on search or pushing them to Google properties such as Google Maps, News.Google, Store.Google, Images.Google, YouTube, etc. In fact, 14% of clicks Google sends back to its own properties, 14% of them. So what are we supposed to do? How do we need to treat SEO heading into 2020? With half of Google searches resulting in zero clicks and Google owning 14% of clicks, what does this mean for SEO and content marketing in 2020? Here are six key things. Firstly, we have to find our ways to make our brand be what searchers seek. The revival of brand marketing is a big trend we've seen in digital marketing. It's, it's such a big point, it deserves its own podcast episode, but branding digital marketing, even just on the SEO side, is really, really powerful. So on the SEO side for a second, you don't want searches for things like weather. You want searches for things like weather channel or weather zone, injecting your brand to be synonymous with the product category, right? So how can you get your brand be what people search for? Two, shift SEO keyword research and content marketing. Google is less likely to cannibalize. Now, tools such as Moz and Ahrefs are great for keyword research and they always have been. So either use those or ask your agency to use those tools and specifically look for the metric that's known as estimated organic click-through rate. Now, let me explain that for a second. Now, with these tools, and I'm, I know there's a whole bunch out there, but you know, specifically with Ahrefs and Moz, sure, you can find the search volume of a keyword, which is always helpful. You can find the difficulty. Uh, you can often find the cost per click if you wanted to bid for that keyword on AdWords, for example. But now, uh, I mean, well, I guess it's been for a while, but now the other metric you should look at is click-through rate, the estimated organic click-through rate. Uh, you're not always going to find two things that are completely equal, <laughs> but all things equal, if the volume was fairly similar, the keyword was fairly similar, and one had more organic click-through rate, you obviously would rather go for that because you know that's going to push people to your website. Three, create people also ask content or PPA content. Now, you guys have seen this. You see it all the time. You might type in, for example, um, is HubSpot too expensive in Google? And I'm just looking at an example here. There'll be a little box that says people also ask, is HubSpot worth the price? Is HubSpot free forever? How much is it monthly? So on and so so forth. Now, you can focus on writing content for that PPA section, the people also ask content section. This is actually a key part of what is called on SERP or on search engine result page SEO, on SERP SEO. A search ending in zero clicks is not useless to marketers or publishers. Yes, the metrics are harder to track and the ability to convert a visitor to take action is reduced, but the ability to influence that searcher still exists. So focusing on people ask content is important because you're still, you still have the opportunity to influence them. If they like what they see in that little box, I know I don't know about you, but I always click through. I always sort of click through to see the source and find out more information. Um, and not only that, if you don't focus on that, that's not yours to begin with. So you know what I mean? You lose out either way. So in terms of how to create content that lands in the answer box, I've got a couple of really good tips for you. 
Firstly, write complete questions and answers. Make sure that the question is asked and answered fully. In the last year or so, the way we've been doing blogs and, and articles for our clients has definitely changed. So in the past where you, you know, you'd write an introduction and then point one, point two, point three conclusion, we've kind of started to switch that up a bit. So for example, um, we've got a blog post called Is HubSpot Too Expensive? Now in order to try to get that into the PPA box, the first paragraph actually directly answers that question. It's kind of like the elevator, you know, summary of um, the question. So for example, I've got summary, is HubSpot too expensive? In short, yes, if you're a small business and are looking at the marketing suite. No, if you're a medium-sized business looking at the marketing suite and a resounding no, if you're looking at HubSpot from the sales side suite, irrespective of your business side, so on and so forth, right? That in itself is another topic for another day. But the point I'm trying to make is to create PPA content, have the question and answer as a summary uh, either it doesn't have to actually be the first paragraph because I've definitely seen examples where it's you know done elsewhere. But from an article structure point of view, it makes more sense, doesn't it? Have the summary there, and I guess then dig deeper. So that's definitely one. You're writing the question, you're writing the answer, you're writing it up high. Uh, use plain language. They've said this, and I've said this before in previous podcasts, but. Online, you should write enough for a 12-year-old's level of English, right? You should write for the the 12-year-old's comprehension skills in terms of English. Get rid of that, you know, innovative, blasé, this, you know, like get rid of all that complicated language and write it very, very simple. It's not that you're dumb. It's not that your audience is dumb. Oh, but Moby, our audience are Fortune 500 execs. Yeah, they are. But when they're skimming, when they're trying to get through information really, really quickly, they don't give a damn about that type of language. They just want to interpret the message right away. And the brain does that when simple, plain language is there. And if it wasn't obvious, avoid sales language. So Google hates PPA, you know, for PPA content, they hate salesy language. So if I was to sort of, you know, in this article write that answer as, oh, it is expensive, but not if you go with red pandas. And Google's not going to give a damn about that. That's not helping the end customer. So definitely do that. The final piece of advice to get into the PPA section is add Q&A schema. So that is just a bit of rich codes, a rich snippet where you sort of add in the back of your website and you kind of nudge Google to say, hey, Google, this is a frequently asked question type of content. Um, If you want to use it, please do so. One thing I will say, now I've left this at the end for a reason. Um, Google's really, really smart these days, guys. You don't necessarily need a lot of schema for Google to pull out rich text into Google search uh, result pages and focus on your on-serp SEO. You actually don't have to, but it definitely helps. All things equal, if Google's kind of trying to crawl, uh, crawl 10 websites and one of them has this schema there, this code there, it's obviously going to help you, but it's no guarantee. But that's definitely something you should look at. Uh, ask your SEO agency or ask your digital producers or whoever to do that if that's something you want to focus on. I definitely think it's worth it if you've done all the work so far. Oh, and by the way, I've just realized I've been calling it PPA boxes. That doesn't make sense. It's PAA boxes, people also ask. Which brings me to my fourth point, and that's on SERP SEO. Now, you heard me mention that term a second ago, uh, on search engine result page SEO. And PAA boxes, sure, it's one element of on SERP SEO, but it's not the be all and end all. Of course, you've also got your Google Maps section, your reviews that come up. 
using your Google My Business login to optimize your locations. In Google My Business, you can have updates, you can upload your own images, videos, you can do a whole bunch of stuff. There's that. There's other rich schema as well. If you sell recipes, for example, or recipe books, and you write articles on recipes, which would be a good idea, you could have those little preview cards that come up in Google before someone has to click through. There's a whole bunch of other stuff you can do. So that in itself uh, on Surp SEO is its whole thing. And I want to focus on uh, the PAA, people also ask tip as well, to give you guys something practical. But if you are truly serious about SEO in 2020, on Surp SEO and figuring out ways on how you can optimize that is going to be key. Now, the fourth one is Barnacle SEO and editorial content submission. Okay, so I'm not making this stuff up. If you're like me, you're thinking, what the freak is Barnacle SEO? I don't know if it's an American thing or what that you guys love creating uh, these weird names for things. But anyway, the idea is, you know how like a barnacle is attached to a rock or the side of a ship? It takes advantage of the nutrients it consumes as the ship travels through waters. The barnacle usually couldn't. It just wouldn't be able to. Similarly, in the SEO world, there are keywords that are so competitive for you that it's not realistic getting those rankings easily. So you attach yourself to the properties that are being be seen on those ships that are ranking. So Rand gives a really good example of this. He talks about a Shakespeare festival, finding it impossible to rank for Shakespeare quotes, but Wikipedia does. So using Barnacle SEO, they could provide references, missing quotes, provide media on the Wikipedia property, on that Wikipedia ship, to leverage off, I guess, the traffic that that property is getting. So bringing this back to doing SEO in the 2020 world of Google. So when keyword searches show aggregated answers, right? There's all these uh, aggregated answers that now appear and blog articles and posts, then try to influence those publishers to get listed or make editorial submissions. Now, editorial submissions, backlinking, this is not old. It's, it's still done. It still works. Um, but this also talks to this tactic of Barnacle SEO and editorial content submissions to get onto those properties that are ranking so you can appear. Five, if Google biases to images and YouTube and maps and Genius, then create content for these platforms. Make sure, I mentioned this earlier, make sure you have Google map listing via GMB. You can post little updates. You can uh, actually post special offers and things like that, deals and that sort of thing. Uh, make sure you have your reviews, have consistent video content on YouTube. It's not hard to figure out, guys. It's just good old-fashioned hard work. But understanding that, yes, 14% of clicks now go to Google properties. Half of them stay on should help you with that mindset and give you more ammo to focus on some of these areas. Six, finally, use ads to nudge awareness and behavior. So Google ads work not only because they are obviously at the top of search engine result pages. And these days, if you notice, they don't look like ads anymore. They look very organic Many a time I've sat with a client and we've done these little, you know, tests. We've looked at uh, a query and they've said, oh, well, we're not actually ranking there or we are ranking there, but they haven't actually realized that it actually is an ad. We have to say, look, that's the ad. Then you have maps. Then you have organic, right? If you're lucky. So anyway, so not only are they at the top, they help familiarize users with your brand, particularly for those keywords at the top of funnel, sorry, or the awareness stage, they get familiar with your brand. And in fact, there is a very strong correlation of branded search results increasing 
after brands have run Google Display and Google Search Ads. It just works. People tend to search for your brand more after you've run ads. So that's it. Like I said, it is, I guess, a bit of a mindset shift in terms of how you approach SEO. It's not just about those articles and those keywords. There's a lot of on-SERP SEO now you've got to focus on and um, understanding that you have to be on those Google properties because Google, just like Facebook, they want to keep you on their properties. Speaking of Facebook, that takes me on to our second buzz of the episode, and that's Facebook instant experience ads. In 2019, we saw Facebook cost per clicks rise just crazy, 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 going from, you know, a dollar to two, three, four, five, six, seven dollars, just crazy rises. Now, if you're sick of that and sick of lower cost per acquisitions and haven't actually used Facebook instant experience ads, then you need to listen to this next bit. So Facebook instant experiences are a new and improved version of Facebook's Canvas ads. They used to be called Canvas ads in the past. And if you're familiar with that, that's what they are now. And if you're not, that's okay too. We'll explain it. Facebook instant experience ads are an immersive, full-screen, mobile-only experience and allows businesses to showcase products, tell a brand story in a very visually compelling way. So I guess how to explain this on an audio podcast. You see an ad in your newsfeed just like you normally would, and there's a little arrow on it. You click on it, and it opens up this immersive, full-screen, uh, I guess, experience. And in that experience, you can have things like a video up top, you could have some text, and then a carousel, then maybe an image or two, a couple of buttons, and you can style it a fair bit, actually. You own brand colors, you can even change the button. So it's almost like a mini mobile landing page. Now, this is the thing, like, as you guys might know, when Facebook releases a new ad format, it's a good opportunity to jump on. They have a lot of inventory. They make it very cheap. Um, they get high reach traction because Facebook is trying to p- uh, push a particular format. And we know what they're going to do. They get everyone hooked. They get everyone onto it, used to it. And then they just gouge you with like crazy prices afterwards, right? It's the Facebook way. But the point is, not many of your competitors are doing it right now. And Facebook is really pushing instant experiences. They've released all these new little templates. So in the past, you had to kind of figure it out yourself. But all these templates where the carousel is already there, just add your own images. There's a video section there. There's a text section there. There's all these templates there. And they're really sort of pushing all the resources out there, which I'll link in the show notes, um, to get advertisers using these. Now, how would you use them? There's a couple of different ways. There's e-commerce ads uh, where you can actually have products, almost like a mini website in this instant experience. Now, admittedly, we haven't run any of those. Uh, None of our e-commerce clients have used those, but where we've played a lot with that Red Pandas are the lead generation link ads. So just like a Facebook ad that you have an image and you send them to a landing page, it's like that, but it's done via the instant experience. So they click on uh, an image, they get this instant experience, they have all this content we want them to consume, and then the call to action pushes them to an actual landing page. So that's one, that's the second one rather. And then lead ads. Now, if you've used lead ads before, you know what they are, you get an ad, there's a form within Facebook, and then Facebook takes the uh, the, the details that you've already provided Facebook and then provides them to the advertiser. So similarly, the exact same way, but again, done via the instant experience first, you consume all that content. Now, the reason why I love these ads is they feel less advertising. That's always my objective when it comes to Facebook ads. How can we make them feel useful, credible, informative, helpful to the audiences? Because no one goes to Facebook to consume ads, right? 
So they, they are more immersive, they feel less advertising, people can explore, interact with bits of the content, can almost sort of you know, try before they buy kind of thing when it comes to what you're trying to present to them before they make that commitment to click or complete a form or whatever. So let me give you a quick example. Uh, a client of ours in the childcare industry, they have childcare centers. Uh, we wanted to promote a, an end of year offer for them. So we want the end result is we want them to go to a landing page and give us their details. They get this offer, this special offer that is for a finite period and goes. we go from there. Now, obviously the medium we're using is Facebook Instant Experiences. So the ad itself, as a user is scrolling through a newsfeed, and remember this is mobile only, it's not gonna work on desktop. The user is, is, is going through their newsfeed, they see this very visual hero image. An image that kind of sticks out in the newsfeed. I call it pattern interrupt. What is something that's going to sort of break the pattern, interrupt the pattern of what they're scrolling through? So make it very visual. No text if at all possible. Then they click on that. And you'll often see with these experience ads, if you haven't seen them already, a little arrow. They click on that and the whole kind of screen opens up. At the top, we have the day in the life of their child. So if their child went to this childcare center, what would their day in the life be? And there's like, you know, at nine o'clock, this happens and 12 o'clock, this happens and 3 p.m., this happens. So kind of bringing them into um, the experience of this childcare center. Then we have an image of the special offer. Then we have a little bit of text. Then we have a carousel with some unique selling points. So USP1, USP2, USP3, you know, whatever your unique selling points might be, you could use it that way. A bit more text, and then I like ending it with a testimonial, a video testimonial, for this particular example anyway. And then finally, a call to action. Now, I've been testing two call to actions. One was to book a tour, and the other was to redeem an offer. But I give you that example because you can really quickly see that, sure, I can run some of these other elements. I could just run a testimonial video ad. I could do that. I could just run the day in the life video. I could do that. But this allows me to create a narrative, a compelling story where I can do two, three, four, five things. I can have my USPs there and it doesn't feel cluttered. You know, it's not messy and it's immersive. So that's why it's worked for us. Now, the benefits have been crazy, crazy. Like firstly, first and foremost, from a cost point of view, uh, we've tried this on a few clients and we've seen in every single case for the time being anyway, the cost being lower from anywhere from a third of the cost per click compared to a link ad to a quarter of regular link ads. Uh, the cost per acquisition of less than half. This has been crazy. Obviously, the space to promote our unique selling points. See, in, in what I do, clients are always saying, we need to promote this and this and this selling point. My job is always to say, yeah, cool, that's all well and great, but what's in it for me? You know, YFM, as my marketing lecturers used to teach me. What's in it for me? How do we promote the what's in it for me for our audience? This allows us to do that. We can promote the what's in it for, for me, for them, and also promote our USPs. We have space to do that, and it doesn't feel cluttered. And of course, branding, you know, showing your brand, showcasing your brand's benefits uh, compared to your competitor who might not be using something like this is a very compelling reason to use this. Um, the other little tip I'll give you is, you know, say some of you do less on the advertising side and, you know, focus more on the organic social media side, you can actually create them as posts as well. So just as straight posts for your, for your audiences. You can go into publishing tools. And again, the link will be in the show notes and I'll share a screenshot of where you can find them. You go to your Facebook page, you go to publishing tools, and then you can create the instant experience there and promote it on your page from there. It doesn't have to be an ad. You could have a very you know, vibrant community of a lot of people there and say, this is the other way we've used them for clients, is you have a, an open day or you have a, a, a like a 
family fun day or whatever it is, um, some sort of event. You could use, use these experiences. You could have, you know, the itinerary, you could have the information in that instant experience and just promote it and pin it to the top of your page. Really, really awesome stuff. So if you're running ads, you've got nothing to lose. Check out the show notes, redpandas.com.au forward slash EP104 for more details and information. Now, finally, I spoke about goals. Now, if you're sort of just here for the marketing stuff, this way you can tune out. But I guess what I want to say is goal setting itself it's kind of broken, right? I mean, people have been slamming New Year's resolutions for a long time because they simply don't work. They're too airy, they're too fairy, they're too, I just want to be fit, I want to make more money, I want, I want to move up in my career. And that's all well and good. And I'm not here to slam setting goals. Goals, you know, if they're specific and they're measurable and they're timely, um, you know, you have your big macro goals. Last year, I spoke a lot about having a big macro goal, but then focusing on the little things like the micro things you do on a daily basis, on a weekly basis to achieve those goals. That's still important. I'm not trashing that. All I'm saying is how to augment them in a way where you might not have thought about before. Now, early this year, I set myself a goal of, actually started the year, I set myself a goal of reading two books a month. So I actually didn't get through two books a month. I got through more like one book a month. But the point is, I set that goal uh, the year before. I didn't have that goal, and I got through maybe two or three books the entire year. So I still got through twelve. So one of those books was Mark Manson's "The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F." You can figure out what that means. And the byline is a counterintuitive approach to living a good life. So he does it in a very entertaining way. There's a lot of storytelling. It's very kind of it's a very anti-hero. Very kind of. Um, different to those you know typical soft self-help books it's very real it's very direct the big thing that mark talks about that i used in all of 2019 is values right what how to create values and how to anchor your values this is one of the things that it sounds so obvious once you hear it we all know about values we all know that values are important to us but mark talks about anchoring your values to things inside of your control things that are processes these things should define you, not external, material, finite. And I thought this was a very smart way to look at things. You know, people often will, their values are driven by what other people think, getting acceptance, approval from other people. Even if they don't admit it, if they stop to think about what they value, it's often very external. It's often things outside of their control. And that's what Mark means when he talks about the approach to living a good life. You can control problems based on how you choose to think about them, how you see problems and change what you value and how you measure failure or success. He says, only choose values that you can control. Values you don't control are bad as they'll be a constant source of unnecessary suffering in your life. So the idea is good values are reality-based. They're socially constructive and they're immediate and controllable. Bad values are superstitious, they're socially destructive, and they're not immediate or controllable. And the idea is once you define those values, you don't give an F about anything else. You remind yourself that this is what I value, this is why I value it, these are things within my control, and this is how I choose to see them. I'm not going to give a damn about anything else. So example of good values are things like innovation, honesty, uh, standing up for yourself, standing up for others, self-respect, curiosity, creativity. So like I said, they're processes. They're not a final destination. Creativity, self-respect, curiosity, these are processes. They're ongoing and they're things that you can control. Bad values examples are dominance through manipulation or violence, indiscriminate um, you know, sleeping around, trying to feel good all the time, uh, always trying to be the center of attention, not being alone, 
being liked by everyone. These are things that there is a limit to what you can control. So anyway, that's something that I found really helped me in 2019. I'm sharing it as a reminder again for myself um, as I formulate my goals for 2020. And on that note, I'd like to wish you a happy new year, a very prosperous and successful 2020, whether this is the first time you're listening to Inbound Buzz or the hundredth time. Uh, look forward to speaking to you more in 2020. You know where to reach me, moby at redpandas.com.au or on Twitter at mobysleek. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you and I'll join you again for another episode of Inbound Buzz. Thanks for listening to Inbound Buzz. Learn anything? Return the favor by spreading the word. Want to make your mark in digital? Need help with your digital strategy, inbound and marketing automation efforts? Then visit redpandas.com.au and be sure to tune in next time for another Inbound Buzz hit.